0: Amen. Well, this morning looks a little bit different for us being inside. You know, I don't get to do my normal thing that we're a church without walls, because apparently we're a church that sometimes has some walls. But nonetheless, our mission remains the same. Our mission is to help people discover the fullness of God, become authentic disciples of Jesus Christ and live life on mission. And today what we're doing is we're continuing in our Advent series. And this has been a fun series that we've been in for the last few weeks. And it's titled kind of a comically hope everything is going to be all right. As I was looking for the right graphic for this, which I have no clue why I was doing that, just I can't break some habits that are deep inside of me. I came across this one that says everything is going to be all right. And at first I was like, that's a silly thing to celebrate. But then I realized in Jesus, the hope that we have when we are in him, when we have placed our trust in him, is that everything truly will be all right. And so Advent is what we're in. It's the time of year that we're in. And it's this practice, like I've said the last few weeks, that has existed within the universal church for at least the last 1,500 years. And so what we're doing is we're joining with the universal church, because it's not just us here in, in my home today. It's all of us gathered together, the universal church, looking back to Jesus's first coming and looking forward expectantly to his second coming. Advent's about putting to death our anxiety, about it's putting to death our worries and our struggle and replacing those things with the hope in the coming king, this Jesus of Nazareth who comes to restore all things. So this season is an invitation for us to renew our hope in Jesus. It's a a longing, it's an inviting for us to make a shift, to make a change in our lives. And apparently my mask just keeps getting sucked in, so this is going to be a fun one for us. But I think we all know that it's really easy to simply go through this year this time of the year to go through the motions to be like, you know, I'm just going to do this. I know it's Christmas. You know, we do this every year. Sweet baby Jesus in a manger. Like, I get it. We do this every single year. We sing these songs. I, I know them by heart. And, you know, I'm like, hell, oh, holy night, yeah the weary world rejoices, blah, blah, blah. And like, we get into this, this rut almost of just going through the motions. And today, what I want to do is kind of help us reframe the, the reason for the season. I know that's really cheesy. And I just want you to bear with with me you know because there's this simple thing you know the reason for the season is Jesus and like yeah we all know that like we know that the reason for the season is Jesus but what I want to do today is I want us to To kind of reframe that and kind of really understand what it is about Jesus that makes him the reason for this season. What is it that we truly celebrate in this Advent time, in this Christmas season of this coming King, this King that has come to establish his kingdom and this King that is coming again to fully establish his kingdom. Because I think it can be really easy for us to misunderstand what it is and how significant it is that Jesus has come and become God with us. See, Jesus' birth is is not inconsequential. It's not this random thing. It's not this thing that just happened by happenstance or, or by chance. Our Savior's birth is the result of the Father's plan to redeem the world. Jesus' birth is this result of the Father's plan to redeem and ransom and rescue the world. And it's not a random plan. It's not a plan that's just like God just thinking up there one day. He's like, you know what? I'm going to send my son. This was God's plan that was delicately and deliberately calculated before the foundation of the earth was laid. This was not a plan B for God. This was always God's plan to ransom, redeem, and restore us. His plan has always included his son, Jesus Christ. And the beauty of this, I think, is that his plan isn't hidden. It's not this God who makes these plans that are unknowable to us. He doesn't just sit there and be like, you know, I got a plan and I want you to know my plan. I want you to worship me. I want you to do all these things correctly, but I'm not going to tell you how to do them. That's not who this God is that we have. He is a God who, who encounters us, who reveals his word to us, who shows us what he's like and what his promises are like through scripture. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to explore what scripture has to say about God's plan to bring about peace and salvation. We're going to read a lot of scripture today. We're going to dive into Old Testament prophets and we're going to have a little bit of fun. But I think God's goodness is ultimately revealed through the fulfillment of his promises. As we can say that God is good and have a theoretical understanding of it, but the way that we truly know that God is good by looking at the promises that he's made and how he has fulfilled them. And so our God is always a God who keeps his promises. This is something that we get to rest in. He is a God that always fulfills his promises. By his very nature, he can't make a false promise. He can't promise that he's going to do something and then change his mind later. He is a God that makes promises and keeps his promises. And the reason we know this to be true, sitting here today, worshiping as we're doing, we know this to be true because we have seen a great light. We have seen the person of Jesus Christ who has come that we might be restored. See, Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises of God, which is what we looked at last week in 2 Corinthians, that all of their promises find their yes in Jesus. And we, the church, are the amen of those promises. God has made promises and their yes in Jesus. And because we are sitting here worshiping together, that's where the amen comes in. We are the proof of God's promises among us today. And so what I want to do this morning is to help us better understand, to help us better see the goodness of God by examining scripture. Because I don't know if you guys know this, but the Bible is full of prophecies. It's full of these crazy things that sometimes you can be reading. You're like, I have no clue what that means. Like you start reading Daniel and Ezekiel and Revelation, and you're just like, what? Four headed monster. And like you're just like, <laughs> you're just having so much fun. And you're just like, okay, I have no clue what's going on. But then when we slow down a little bit when we look at how everyone else has talked about these things throughout history and we look to the saints of the past who have expounded upon these things, who have put them together to talk about this coming Messiah, we start to see this great picture. They talk about this Messiah who, what he's going to do, what he's going to look like, where he's going to live, where he's going to be born, and even how he's going to die. These are all Old Testament prophecies about the coming Messiah and who he's going to be. And the first Messianic prophecy, you know, we, we can think about it. We think that it's probably, you know, like way down on in scripture. Like you probably got to get past like Psalms and Proverbs. And it's like those major prophets when you start seeing those promises of God. No, the first Messianic promise is all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. From the very beginning, God is making messianic promises about a Messiah who's going to redeem us. That first promise found in Genesis 3 is saying that the offspring of the woman, the offspring of Eve, will step on the head of the serpent. Even back that far, God is promising a coming Messiah, a Messiah who will redeem us. So let's go ahead and dive in to this today. See, God has promised peace and salvation. These are the promises of God for us. And so we're gonna to go to Zechariah 9, verses nine and 10. And if you're following along, we actually have the version Bible app, so you can jump in there. All the scriptures are there that we're gonna go into today. But Zechariah 9, verses nine and 10. It says, rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you See, God has promised peace, and and it's not just any peace. He has promised peace through a victor who is humble, who is lowly, who comes riding on a child of a donkey. And this may sound familiar to you, even though if you haven't spent a lot of time in the prophet Zechariah, I'll forgive you for that. But it may sound familiar to you, maybe around, around Easter time, because this story is in the New Testament, it's the story of Jesus on Palm Sunday, who's riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, where people around him are proclaiming, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And of course, we know the people who proclaim this about Jesus's triumphant entry into Jerusalem didn't fully understand what was going on. They didn't fully understand the fullness of what Jesus was coming to accomplish, the fullness of this peace with God, of this salvation that he offers. This promised king is not one who hides away in a palace. He is one who comes to the people to redeem them. He is one who comes to us to redeem us as we looked at last week. This is a king who is unlike any king who has ever reigned before. He is wholly different. And his kingdom is like no other because it expands to the ends of the earth. It has no beginning. It has no end. It has no limits. This kingdom is unceasing. It is unending. Let's go to Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. It says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and the people of Judah. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. I just missed my mouth with my water. (laughs) What I love about this passage What I love about reading this one is it's one where God's goodness and his grace are on full display. God's goodness and his grace are on full display because what he's doing in this passage, what he's doing is he's promising to make a new covenant. And if you know anything about the story of Israel, if you know anything about their history at all, the first thing that probably comes to mind is all of their rebellion. All of their, like, yeah, you know, God has rescued them. It's like, okay, yeah, we're going to be their people. He's going to be my God. Like, everything's going to be good. And then, like, two seconds later, like, they're rebelling again, doing the exact same thing over and over and over again. So you may think as you're, as you're reading this, as you come to this, where God's saying, I'm going to make a new covenant with my people Israel. You're like, oh, no. Like, this covenant is not going to be a good covenant. Like, this is going to be a different type of covenant. It's going to be a covenant of judgment. It's going to be a covenant of destruction. Like, that's kind of what we're expecting when we get to this point. Because he's even talking about this idea that they've, uh, they've walked away from me. They've turned to their own ways, even though I was a husband to them. But that's not what happens. That's not what happens here. It, it's a new covenant that's better than the first covenant. It's a new covenant that goes beyond what the first covenant is. It doesn't punish them for their rebellion. It actually makes it easier for them to be in a restored relationship with God. The first covenant has exceeded the second covenant. And what did the people do to deserve this covenant? Absolutely nothing. They did nothing to deserve this new covenant at all. Nothing at all. They rebelled against God. But God says, you know what? I'm going to give you something greater anyway. I'm going to redeem you anyway. This tells us so much about God's character. He truly is slow to anger. He truly is abounding in steadfast love. He is the everlasting father who, as John tells us, desires that no one will perish. This is why in the face of rebellion, in the face of this history of Israel who has constantly betrayed him, who has constantly walked away from him, he can say, I'm going to make a new covenant with them. I'm going to do something better. I'm going to do something greater. This phrase, then I will be their God and they will be my people, is one that occurs dozens of times throughout scripture. And what this tells us is that God's cry has always been to know us and to be known by us. This has been God's cry throughout the the testimony of Scripture. It has been to be known by us and to know us intimately. This is who this God is. He is a God that wants to be with us. This new covenant of peace is one in which God's law dwells within us and where our wickedness is forgiven where our sins are no longer remembered. This covenant is incredible. Truly this God, this this incredible God who created us, is like no other. He is like no other, and yet he still goes above and beyond. When we think that it's enough, when we think that we have him figured out, that surely he couldn't get better, he always goes above and beyond not only has God promised us peace and salvation, he tells us about the one who will bring these things. See, we are told what, that he will be God with us. Let's read Isaiah 7, verse 14. It says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. See, this bringer of peace, this bringer of salvation, this Messiah, he is Emmanuel which literally means God with us or God is with us. See, God's salvation and peace can ultimately only be fulfilled through God himself becoming man, through God himself coming and being God incarnate, God with us. You know this verse is one that could be interpreted a little bit differently because names aren't always literal. So it could be that this is literally just saying, you know, this is Emmanuel. This dude going to be named Emmanuel and you know, he's going to be like God with us. But the beauty of scripture is that we don't have to make all of our things on one verse. We don't have to like do these like weird little verses that you pull out of nowhere and you're like, yeah, you know, Emmanuel, God with us. So, you know, this guy claiming to be God with us is clearly the Messiah. That's not what we have to do when we look at scripture. The beauty is that God continues to reveal his truth throughout all of scripture. So we don't have to look like that crazy alien dude from the History Channel. It was like, you know, we, we don't have to look like that dude because we're told that this savior will have all authority. We're told that this Savior will have all glory, that he will have sovereign power and will be worshipped by all people. So let's go to Daniel 7, read verses 13 and 14. It says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So ultimately these two verses are within a greater prophecy in the book of Daniel that I encourage you to read because it's a fun little read where you got beasts and they look all sorts of craziness and horns and and it's one of those things where you're just like, what in the world's going on? But the goodness of God is evident in here because what this is revealing is it's revealing this Messiah, this Messiah who comes and does battle with all of those who are anti-Messiah, all of those who claim to have power, who claim to have authority, who claim to have this glory. But what happens is God reveals that he alone is the one that can have those things. And we get some goodness about who this Messiah is through here. Because this Messiah is altogether different than any other. He is altogether different than any other. Because it says here that he is in the likeness of man. He's in the likeness of man. He looks like you and me. He has flesh and bones. He he looks like us. Yet in the same way, he can boldly approach the ancient of days. He can boldly uh, approach this God who is not created and be fully in his presence. So we know he's not merely a man because scripture tells us if we're in the presence of God fully, then we'll die. This is someone who is altogether different. It's all, he's also in the likeness of God because we, we know that God alone is worthy of honor. God alone is worthy of glory. God alone is worthy of all power. And God alone is worthy to be worshiped by all people. See, these characteristics cannot be found in a mere man because God is clear throughout scripture that only he can be worshiped. It even was such a big deal that it made his top 10. This was a big deal to God. It made his top 10 that he alone can be worshiped. And so when we see this prophecy, this promise of a coming Messiah, we know that he is God himself. Because God will not allow anyone else to be worshiped besides him. This Messiah must be God and this Messiah must be man. See, the promised Messiah accomplishes peace through his everlasting reign. An everlasting reign with a kingdom that can't be destroyed. Because I want to be clear, there's no power that's greater than Christ. There's no power that's greater than our Messiah. Nothing can stand against the kingdom of God. There's no power, there's no throne, there's no faction that can stand before the throne of God. See, the Messiah's kingdom will be fully established here on earth, where every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And this kingdom is not a new kingdom. It's not a new kingdom. It has always existed in the heavenly realm. See, because what Daniel is doing here, he's not just prophesying a future kingdom. What he's doing is he's recognizing what's always been in heaven. It's always been like this in heaven where Jesus is worshipped around the throne. Christ's kingdom has no end because it has no beginning. He has always been the king of the throne. He is the Passover lamb who was slain before the foundation of the earth. See, what Daniel is doing is he's merely revealing that the kingdom of God in the heavenly realm where Christ is worshipped will come to be established on earth. He's telling us the kingdom that's far away has come near. This God who is far away has become God with us. He has become Emmanuel. And the Messiah is not just worshipped from afar. He has literally come before us. It's not theoretical. It's not philosophical. He has come to be among us. We're told even more about this Messiah. Isaiah actually reveals about his death that he will be pierced for our transgressions. So let's read Isaiah 53, and I know it's not Easter, but we're going to jump into all the promises, some of the promises. I'm not doing all. I'm going to be here way too long. I don't have that much time this morning, but we're going to jump into a little bit of these promises because they tell us this story of who this Jesus is. Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. It says, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. I want us to remember that this is an Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah. An Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah written hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus was on the earth. This Messiah that's coming, Messiah isn't here to just establish a kingdom, just to reign with an iron fist. That's not what this Messiah is coming to do. He is sent so that our sins might be forgiven. This Messiah isn't just interested in ruling and reigning by an iron fist. He is interested in saving us, in redeeming us, in ransoming us. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He brought us peace through his punishment. By his wounds, we are healed. See, the promises of God to save us are abundant throughout Scripture. He has made a way for us. This is good news. He has made a way for us. And I have better news. This isn't just a promised Messiah. This isn't one that we have to keep looking forward to and eagerly waiting. When will the promises of God be fulfilled? Jesus of Nazareth, born in Bethlehem, is this Messiah. Jesus is the one who has come to do all of these things. This is what the apostle Peter proclaims on the day of Pentecost after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven in Acts 2 verse 36. Peter's preaching this sermon and he says, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. Let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Messiah. There's no room for debate. Jesus has fulfilled everything required of the promised Messiah. He is the one who checks all the boxes. He is the uncreated son of God who takes away the sin of the world. The one who reigns forevermore. He is the one who brought about a new covenant where God's law is written on our heart. He is the one in whom our hope lies. The one that has given us forgiveness of sins. He alone is worthy of our worship and we must respond to the salvation that he offers. We must respond to this hope that he offers by making him Lord and living as ambassadors of his kingdom. This is what the Apostle Paul has to say about this Jesus in Romans 5 verses 1 through 8. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's promise has been fulfilled through Jesus. God's promise has been fulfilled through Jesus. At just the right time, God fulfilled his plan. At precisely the right moment, Jesus came and dwelt among us. He died and was resurrected and ascended to the right hand of God so that we might live, so that we might be rescued, so that we might be restored. We were powerless. We were dead in our trespasses, but God has remained faithful to his promises and brought about a great salvation. He is the God who always fulfills his promises, and all of those promises are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We now have hope of a resurrected life in God's kingdom that has no end because of this Jesus. And because of this, nothing in the world should cause us to lose hope. Nothing in the world should cause us to lose hope. So let me try and summarize all of this for us. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection are the result of God's plan being fulfilled so that we might be ransomed, redeemed and restored. So this Advent, we look back at what God has done by sending his son to dwell among us. We look back at what he's done and we celebrate the salvation that God has brought to us, that Christ has purchased for us based on his righteousness and not our own. We celebrate that. We look back at it. We rejoice also in the hope that we have in the promise of God because he has always fulfilled his promises. We look forward to that second coming of Jesus Christ because God has accomplished what we could not through Jesus. He has accomplished it through Jesus. Peace everlasting joy unspeakable, freedom unending. This has been accomplished by Jesus. And we can rest in the salvation by placing our trust in Jesus and declaring him Lord. We can rest in this because today and every day is the day of salvation because our salvation isn't based on us. It centers on what God has done through Jesus. It centers on Jesus himself. In Jesus, we have seen a great light. We have seen a great light who takes away the sins of the world. And now we eagerly look forward to his return. That's what Advent's about. It's about looking back to Jesus and looking forward ahead to his return. We eagerly look to that day, a time where all things will be fulfilled. A time where all things will be restored. A time where there's no more suffering, where there's no more sin, where there's no more shame, where there's no more strife. A time where all those who are in Christ see him face to face. It's a time of great rejoicing because our Savior has come to reign forevermore on earth. But it's also a time of sorrow for those who have chosen to remain in bondage. And that's, an expect- and that's a reality that we must understand in this as well. That we eagerly look forward to that day, but also look to it with somberness, knowing that we have a job to do here on earth as well. See, our call is to live in light of the promise of Christ's return. See, in Acts 1, as Jesus ascends into heaven, God promises that he will return in exactly the same way. See, God has bought bought us with a price and given us a mission to proclaim his gospel throughout the earth. And the proper response to the promise of Christ's second coming is one of evangelistic fervor. It's really easy to to be tempted to judge and condemn the world around us. To say that everyone's just dirty, rotten sinners. But we must avoid this temptation. We must avoid this temptation because we too were wicked outside of Christ. We too were disqualified outside of Christ. But in Jesus, we have a hope for salvation. And in Jesus, the world has a hope for salvation too. So, as children of God, we have hope in that promise, a hope that we should proclaim to everyone around us. As we look forward to this coming reign of Jesus on the earth forevermore, let's approach it like this. Let's approach it with the reality that He has put us as ambassadors of His kingdom, this kingdom that is being established with us now. Let's pray.